We are indeed gathered here this weekend that we may find our all in Him. Yes. I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter, chapter number 1. 1 Peter, chapter number 1. First Peter chapter number 1, I'll begin reading at verse number 13. These are the words of God. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith in hope are in God. Yes. There is much confusion and misunderstanding surrounding the subject of personal holiness. There are those who say that to be personally holy means that you dress a certain way, talk a certain way, look a certain way, uh, don't drink certain things, don't smoke certain things, don't listen to certain kinds of music, and don't watch certain kinds of movies. On the other hand, there are those who say that personal holiness has very little, if anything, to do with these aforementioned external qualities and is rather all about the attitude of your heart. For these people, it doesn't matter how you dress, how you talk, how you look, what you drink, what you smoke, what you listen to, what you watch, as long as your heart is in the right place. However, the Bible reveals that both of these camps represent a fatal flaw in their doctrine of personal holiness. Both of these errors mix in just enough truth to be incredibly deceptive and lethally dangerous. It is true that personal holiness does encompass the external reality of your life. The conversation about personal holiness would not be complete if we never addressed such things as dress and speech and appearance and recreational activities and entertainments. But if that's all we talk about, we're not talking about personal holiness at all. 
We would instead be talking about a Pharisaic legalism that washes the outside of the cup and the dish, but leaves the inside filthy and unclean. Moreover, it is also true that personal holiness concerns itself with the attitude of the heart. But if we divorce the heart attitude from its necessary manifestation in the way we live our lives, then again, we're not talking about personal holiness. We're talking about a practical antinomianism that has a form of godliness but denies the power thereof. So with all the intricacies and difficulties in discussing the topic of personal holiness, why would we choose it as a theme for this retreat? Because as challenging of a topic as this might be, it is a topic that we simply cannot afford to get wrong. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you're not pursuing holiness, you have no reason to think that you'll see the Lord when you die. Therefore, the study of personal holiness is quite important. Those who think that personal holiness is summed up in a list of superficial externals are not pursuing true personal holiness. And those who think that personal holiness is limited merely to an attitude in their heart are not pursuing true personal holiness. So my desire is to show you from the Word of God what personal holiness is, what a pursuit of personal holiness looks like and the source of our strength for this pursuit. Important things. And in doing so, I pray that God will give us the grace and determination to pursue personal holiness so that we may one day see Him. But make no mistake about it, underscore it, understand this. This is the difference between seeing Him and dying and going to hell. So let's look at 1 Peter. The verses in our text, verses 13 down through verse 21, represent one unit of thought. However, there there are two transitional phrases that indicate for us the logical progression of the text. Verse 13 begins with, with the word, therefore, which as you know, Ties what Peter is about to say with what he's previously said in the passage. You need, you will miss, you will miss so many important theological truths if you don't look out for the buts and the therefores and the soases. There's a context here, and you need to understand the context. What Peter begins to do in verse 13 is issue imperative commands. Based on the indicatives of verses 3 through 12. Now, an imperative is what? A command. An indicative is a declarative statement. The Bible is full of imperatives and indicatives. The Bible tells us things. And then the Bible tells us to do things based upon what the Bible tells us. 
In verse 18, we see this really important phrase, knowing that. Knowing that. Or or some of your translations might say, wherefore knowing, or because we know, or something to that effect. But this begins another section of indicatives that are necessary for the believer to grasp in order to have the ability to obey the imperatives of verse 13. So here's the structure of 1 Peter chapter number 1, and you need to understand this structure. There is a set of imperatives. That's what we're going to look at this evening. There's a set of imperatives that is wedged between two sets of indicatives. And the first set of indicatives provides the basis for the imperatives. That's verses 3 through 12. And the second set of indicatives provides the power to obey the imperatives in verses 13 through 17. Yes. Okay, so it's like a little imperative sandwich. I'm going to preach this text to you in two sections. Beginning with the imperatives that, that begin in verse 13. Because those imperatives paint a picture for us. They, they paint the picture and they illustrate for us what personal holiness looks like. What we will do if we're pursuing personal holiness. Tomorrow, we'll consider the second set of indicatives that begin at verse 18, which proclaim the power that we must have in order to pursue lives marked by personal holiness. God not only commands us And what we are to do, but he also gives us the power to do what he commands. As Augustine said, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. So let's look at this picture that begins in verse 13. This picture of personal holiness. There are several things I want you to see. The first thing is this. The first piece to this picture is a refining of the mind. A refining of the mind. Therefore, Peter says... He is writing to an audience of dispersed Christians living in perilous days. The diaspora. And he is encouraging them with the promises of God to endure hardship. Don't we love the promises of God? You go into a Christian bookstore. You look at the mugs. You read the t-shirts. I bet there's some of you here that are wearing t-shirts right now that have the promises of God printed on them. I bet there's some of you that have vehicles in the parking lot that have bumper stickers with the promises of God on them. Because we love the promises of God. I'll never forsake them. And no man will ever pluck them out of my hand. We love the promises of God. But we sometimes have, have a problem with the imperatives. Because the imperatives don't always make us feel really warm and tingly inside. Sometimes the imperatives make us feel downright uncomfortable. So before Peter gives these imperatives, he first berates them and bombards them with sweet, precious promises. Verse 3. Notice. These promises are to them and they're to you in Christ. Verse 3. We are begotten again to a living hope. Verse 4, we have an incorruptible and undefiled inheritance that is reserved in heaven and does not fade away. Verse 5, we are kept by the power of God. 
Verse 7, though we are grieved by various trials, we rejoice because our sufferings prove the genuineness of our faith. Isn't that glorious? Verse 8, though we've never seen Christ face to face, we love Him and believe in Him and rejoice in Him with inexpressible joy that is full of glory. Verse 9, by this faith, we receive the salvation of our souls. Verse 12, this saving grace is so marvelous that the angels in heaven desire to look into it. This is true of all of you. Sometimes it's common to hear certain Christians say, especially those who were raised in a Christian home, uh, they'll say, well, you know, my testimony... Is really not that exciting. Life from the dead is always exciting. So exciting that the angels in heaven desire to look into your life and see what God has done. Peter is pounding out these promises to remind his readers. That though the days grow darker, the hope within us glows brighter still. But he didn't just want them to have an intellectual knowledge of these wonderful truths. He wanted them to do something with it. Good theology is never meant to be hung up on the wall and admired. It is always meant to be lived out. God didn't save you just so you could go to heaven. He saved you so that you can live like heaven while you're on your way there. So he gives us these promises. Now what are we to do with it? Verse 13 picks up the imperatives. Number one, there's a refining of the mind. Peter says... Gird up the loins of your mind. Now, this isn't the main imperative of verse 13. This is a participle that modifies the imperative. But this is the beginning of the picture of personal holiness. Girding up refers to what men in the first century would do to prepare for action. The long flowing robes that were customarily worn in those days... They, they would hamper strenuous physical activity. It was hard to run and sling a sword and throw an axe when you're wearing a long robe. So what the men would do is they would take up the robe and they would expose the trousers that they were wearing under the robe. And they would tie the robe up and tuck it into their belt that's called girding up the loins. When they prepared for battle, they would tie up their robes in a girdle so as not to hamper them in action. In like manner... Peter tells us that we must gird up the loins of our minds. Prepare your mind for action. Remove hindrances. Put away vanities. Remove impediments. Prepare for deep thinking. What does this have to do with the theme of this retreat? Personal holiness in the Christian life is not rooted in an emotional experience or a passionate feeling. Some of you will come to an event like this, and here's what will happen. You will think, you know, this event has been really wonderful. 
It's been good to get away and to spend time with other believers. And it's reminded me of how lukewarm I've been and how worldly I've been. And now that I've had this weekend-long experience, I think I'm going to change some things about my life so that I can pursue holiness. But that change will last about as long as the emotional effects of the event. Personal holiness, true personal holiness, is rooted and grounded in right thinking. It comes through a rational, logical, determined conviction that is first formed in your mind before it is cemented in your heart and then, and only then, manifested in your conduct. We must have our minds properly directed before our lives can be changed. Have you ever known a Christian that lived like this, whose life was a spiritual Ferris wheel? They do all right for a while. Maybe they even show some signs of growth, but then they begin to develop unhealthy, sinful patterns in their life. And then something occurs, perhaps they're rebuked or called out or they sin in some egregious way and they have this shocking revelation that things are not going well. And they experience a deep feeling, keyword feeling, of conviction. And so they make drastic changes and they swear that from now on they're going to be different. And those changes last about two weeks. And then those same sinful patterns reemerge and they get back on the Ferris wheel and they just keep going round and round. What's wrong with that person? Maybe I just described you. What's wrong with you if that's you? What's wrong with you, what's wrong with them is that their motivation for holiness is an emotional feeling, not a firm conviction formed from clear biblical thinking. Your feelings are essential for your holiness, but your feelings must be governed and directed by your thinking, not the other way around. So Peter says this, be sober. Sobriety in the context of what? Thinking. Thinking. Do you know what what inebriates your thinking? Unbridled emotion. I heard one preacher say, Uh, That he keeps a two by four in his office for every teenage boy that comes in and says that he's in love so he can take the two by four out and hit him in the head with it. Because unbridled feeling, unbridled feeling inebriates clear thinking. So Peter says, be sober. He's telling us how we are to think. He wants us to gird up the loins of our mind so that we will be prepared for active and clear thinking. The question that every one of you should be asking me at this point is this. Thinking about what? No, this is not some uh, ancient Near East mysticism. You know, sit there and cross your legs and om and clear your mind. No, clear biblical thinking is directed thinking. What is it that we're supposed to think so actively about? There is a refining of the mind, but secondly, I want you to see at the end of verse 13, there is a resting upon grace. A resting upon grace. This is the imperative of verse 13. That that participle, 
That was the modifier for this imperative. That's what you must do to prepare yourself for this imperative. Here's the imperative. Rest your hope fully upon the grace. This verse could rightly be translated, Therefore, girding up the loins of your mind and being sober, rest your hope fully upon grace. I cannot overstate how important verse 13 is in regards to your personal holiness. See, when you announce that you're preaching on personal holiness in the Christian life and you turn to 1 Peter and you start talking about imperatives in the middle of the chapter, where did your minds all go to? They went to verse 15. I know they did. That is an imperative in this text. Sure is. The second one, by the way, not the first one. But I just read to use the first imperative of the whole book. There are two commands here. The first is to rest your hope fully in grace. And the second, the second is to be holy even as God is holy. And here's what you must understand. Listen very carefully. If you skip the first command, you will legalize the second command. So before I can talk to you about being holy for God is holy, I need to talk to you about resting your hope fully in grace. Because legalism occurs when our hope is not rested in God's grace, but is striving in our works. Not only is this fundamental to personal holiness, it's essential merely to being a Christian. Because a Christian is someone who's resting their hope on the grace of God in Christ. Not someone who's striving in their flesh to be good enough to earn God's favor. If that's you, you're not a Christian. You're a Pharisee. You're a legalist. And the call to you before... You realize if that's you, the worst thing I could preach to you is be holy for God is holy. Sure, Just make you more miserable. Drive you deeper into the pit that you're already in. <laughs> if that's you, I want you to hear me. Rest your hope in grace. Yes. Not in your works. In grace. For girding up the loins of our mind and thinking rightly and biblically. However, even still, genuine believers can also falter at this point. We can get trapped in the pitfall of thinking that it was God that justified us, but now our growth and development in the Christian life is all dependent upon our performance from here on out. Well, such a notion is obliterated by two details about the grace that's mentioned in this verse. Notice how Peter describes this grace. You you understand that there's all sorts of kinds of graces. Peter says, rest your hope fully in the grace that is brought to you. The first detail you must take note of is the manner in which this grace is received. You do not earn it. You do not achieve it. You do not pay for it. You do not work for it. You don't even ask for it. You sure don't deserve it. 
It is sovereignly delivered to you by God through the Spirit of God via ordinary means and extraordinary means. And your responsibility is to simply receive it by faith alone. Yes. It's brought to you. In the reception of grace, God is ultimately active and you are ultimately, ultimately passive. In the reception of grace. That's why we're commanded here to rest, rest in the hope of grace. Peter doesn't tell us to strive in the hope of grace, toil in the hope of grace, labor in the hope of grace. Rest in the hope of grace. You say, wait a minute, I thought you said we had to pursue holiness. I thought you said this was about purposed holiness. That sounds like something I have to do. Absolutely, it sounds like something you have to do. Listen, you're passive in the reception of God's grace, but you're not passive in what you do with that grace. The whole point of the Christian life and progressive sanctification is this. This is why I'm not a Roman Catholic. God gives you grace... Listen very carefully. He does not give you holiness. You receive holiness when you pursue it. But you only pursue it because God gives the grace. You say, does that mean that I can boast in holiness as something I accomplished? No, because any holiness that you worked out in the Christian life is entirely the result of God's grace working in you that you didn't earn, that you didn't achieve, that you didn't buy, that you didn't pay for. This is how God reveals and demonstrates his goodness to us. What does he say to the faithful on the last day? Well done. That means you did something. We're not hyper-Calvinists either, are we? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. This is how good God is to you. He commands you to do something. Then he does it in you by grace. Then he rewards you for doing it. And then you take that reward and you use it to glorify him. So I'm not a Roman Catholic. No, I don't believe that God gives you the grace and then you do the works necessary to merit his favor. But I'm also not a hyper-Calvinist. It says there's really no responsibility on your part at all. Understand firstly that personal holiness begins with resting our hope on divine grace that is brought to us by the goodness of God. Now, there's a second thing about this grace that we need to understand. He says that it's the grace that will be brought to you. And it's going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is grace that is in the future tense. 
See, when God saved you, he didn't zap you from heaven with all the grace that you would ever need. Rather, throughout the whole of your Christian life, he has given you the grace you need when you need it. And by giving more grace and grace upon grace, he meets all your needs and keeps you continually in need of his grace. See, I'm telling you stuff you already know. You know you need the grace of God daily and continually and moment by moment. And were he to shut off the supply of grace, you would be damned forever. That's why we need those promises that said he's never going to do that. Theologically, it is proper to understand three primary installments of divine grace in the life of the believer. Three primary infusions of grace. There is, number one, justifying grace. That is the grace that comes to you when you are first converted to Christ. By this grace, you are born again, made alive to God. You are first given the gifts of faith and repentance. Justifying grace. Secondly, there's sanctifying grace. That is the grace that comes to you progressively throughout the whole span of your Christian life. And by this grace, you are changed and conformed into the image of Christ and you grow in faith and knowledge and love. Sanctifying grace. But thirdly, brothers and sisters, there's glorifying grace. That is the grace that comes to you when Christ returns for you. And by His grace, you drop your body of flesh. And you receive a glorified body. And the perfect bliss of being sinlessly perfect. And best of all, it is this grace... That ushers you into the very presence of God where you will behold your Savior face to face. Peter says in this chapter that we're born again not with corruptible seed but incorruptible even by the word of God. Do you realize that it was the word of God that God first used to communicate to you justifying grace. The word written, the word preached. Justified. And then it is by his word as one of the means, yea, maybe you could even say the primary means of ordinary grace that God sanctifies you through his word. Listen, there's yet coming a day in which you will receive your last effusion of grace from the written word. You'll wake up one morning, you'll open your Bible, and you'll read the Word, and you'll receive sanctifying grace. But then you'll close your Bible, and then you'll close your eyes, and you'll die. And you'll never see the written Word again, but the very next thing you will see, by glorifying grace is the living word standing before you. And I don't know about you, 
But I don't want any surprises when I get there. I want to say that the living word whom I stand before and who I behold is the same Jesus that I spent my Christian life savoring in and feasting upon in the written word. Yes, brother. I receive glorifying grace. And it is this grace, this glorifying grace, that Peter tells us to rest our hopes fully upon. Hope in the Bible doesn't mean the same thing as it does in our modern usage of the word. Our definition of hope amounts to nothing more than wishful thinking. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. But in the Bible, hope is a sure thing. It is an absolute certainty. Now why is this important? Because you can't rest your hope in the effusion of grace at the second coming if the second coming of Christ is not a sure and certain event. But because it is, you may rest just as confidently in the hope that produces holiness as you do in the grace that will be brought to you at the second coming of Christ. Well, how do you do that? How do you rest your hope fully in this grace? By setting your minds, which the loins thereof are girded up, upon the reality of Of the glorification that awaits you at the second coming. You don't become holy by sitting around and thinking about your sins all the time. That's a good way to become miserable. That's a terrible way to become holy. You pursue personal holiness by fixating your mind on the truth that Christ will come back. And when he does, he will make you complete, sinless, and perfectly holy. Calvin said, when we direct our eyes to this event, this world becomes crucified to us and us to the world. Don Whitney, in his book, speaks of a boy learning to play the guitar. And he says, every day this boy practices and he just listens to himself. And he just becomes more and more frustrated because he just doesn't hear himself getting any better. What's the use? What's the use? You ever been there in your Christian life? You're fighting sin. You're striving. But you just keep sinning. What's the use? But imagine if that boy could see a video of a guitar virtuoso playing prime time, center stage at Carnegie Hall. Then someone says to that little boy, hey, That's you in 30 years. Then he would have what? Hope. He would have hope when he practiced. Brothers and sisters, if all you ever do is look to yourself and consider your own failures, you will have a Christian life that leads to drudgery. You must look and rest in what you will be and find in that vision the motivation to pursue personal holiness. You gird up your mind to rest your hope in a future grace that yields the present fruit of holiness. So verse 13 is so important to us in your pursuit of holiness because it's the basis from which the rest of this passage flows. We've seen this 
resting our hope fully in grace. But notice thirdly, now he's going to get a little bit more specific. He's painting this picture. Here's the next little detail. Personal holiness, a pursuit of it, is a renunciation of former lusts. Look at verse 14. Peter continues to illustrate this for us. He begins to show us what holiness looks like. And in verse 14, he tells us what it's not. And then in verses 15 and 16, he tells us what it is. Verse 14, he says, As obedient children, as obedient children, we are no longer the children of wrath, but by grace we have become the children of God. And having been changed, God expects our behavior to manifest that change. And this verse ties our practical obedience into our position as the children of God. You need, as Christians, you need to have a firm grasp on positional truth. It's the only thing that will keep you sane. It's the only thing that keeps me sane. On days when I'm struggling... On days when I'm doubting, on days when temptations are whelming about, if I don't have positional truth yes. that tells me I am seated with Him in heavenly places, I'll come to despair. Yes. Your position is that you're an obedient child. And you've been made that by grace. Here's the rubric for that obedience. And by the way, you will know who your father is by who you obey. Here's the rubric. Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. Your ignorance refers to your life prior to your conversion. The loins of your mind were not girded up. You were not sober. You were not fully resting your hope in the grace of God. You weren't striving after godliness. You were striving after sin. You weren't pursuing holiness. You were pursuing iniquity. But now, you're not who you used to be. And it is the character of our Father, His love for us, and His promises to us that cause us to renunciate the world and our former lusts. Now why does Peter use this language, this children language? Let me see if I can illustrate it for you. There's two girls. One of them has a derelict father. Who is nothing more than a useless deadbeat. And the other girl had a loving father. Who affectionately raised her in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The first girl engulfed herself in a life of fornication and immorality. Seeking to fill the void of masculine love that she never received as a child. The only reason a man ever told her that he loved her was because she had something that he wanted. She didn't care about honoring her father. He was a deadbeat. She didn't respect him. She didn't care about garnering a reputation of being sleazy, being easy, and thus bringing shame to her father. She only wanted to chase her lust and to Satisfy her desire to feel loved. The other girl, however, purposed to maintain her purity. 
And when some scumbag of a boy pressured her into sex, she said, I can't do that because I remember my father's love for me. And I remember that he is jealous over my purity. And he gives me all the love I could ever need. I will not dishonor him by committing this act of immorality. Christian, don't you see that you are not a spiritual orphan? Don't you see that you have a heavenly father who loves you more than you could ever comprehend? And who has a vested interest in your holiness? He is so interested in your holiness that he sent his son to die in order to secure it. You don't have to chase after former lusts to feel loved and to feel secured. And he doesn't love you because of anything you can provide him. He's not pimping you out. He's not using you. He loves you because he loves you. See, I could just preach on and on about personal holiness and beat you up over how sinful you are and we could all leave here miserable and none of us would have anything wherewith to pursue holiness. But if we could only grasp God's love for us and His desire for us to be His holy people, your pursuit of holiness must begin with a recognition and a realization that He is 100% for you. He's not your enemy in the pursuit of holiness. The guilt and the conviction you feel is not His wrath towards you. If we could grasp this, we would have enough to propel us to a million lifetimes of piety and holiness. When you begin to understand what He's done for you, that's when you begin to run to Him. Pursue him. So there's a renunciation of former lusts, but there's also a resembling of the divine essence. Now we come to the verses that everybody immediately thinks we're going to jump to when we talk about personal holiness in 1 Peter. I really hope that you see how understanding the context of this chapter will put verses 15 and 16 into perspective. A resembling of the divine essence. Essence. He's told us what holiness isn't. It's not our former lusts. Now he tells us what it is. He says this, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. See, we often think of holiness as separating. And, And that's true. That's what it is from the etymology of the word. How can we then say that God is holy? Unto what higher value is God separated unto? Divine holiness then must be defined as the essence of who he is. God's holiness is his godness. It is his root core value that qualifies all of his attributes. God's holiness, then, refers to his transcendent purity and perfection. Therefore, when we are pursuing holiness, we are in actuality pursuing God. Pursuing him. The pursuit of holiness is a pursuit of God. Purposed holiness is purposed godliness. 
For you to be holy is for you to be separated unto God, consecrated unto Him, conformed to who He is. With this proper definition, and only with this proper definition, are we able to rightly understand the four-word preposition phrase that comes after this. So what does he say? Look at verse 16. Verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. What is he saying there? Be as God, as becomes the character of God, as is who God is in all of your conduct. What Peter is doing here is he's taking the inward focus of our mind and the resting of our hope in grace and showing how that permeates its way into the practical outworking of the way we live our lives. I had to spend a half hour getting here because if I just jumped here, I'd be legalistic. A pursuit of holiness is not the pursuit of conduct. It's a pursuit of God in your conduct. Therefore, to be holy in your conduct is to conduct yourself and live your life in a way that reflects the truth of who God is. Now, we can, we can talk about the practical examples. Time doesn't permit us. We could go into all of the, the standards and all of the different things. But see, to have holiness in, say, dress is to clothe yourself in such a way that reflects the character of God. To have holiness in speech is to talk in such a way that reflects the character of God. To have holiness in sexual ethics is to possess your vessel after the character of God. To have holiness in recreation and entertainment is to amuse yourself with the things that are becoming of the character of God. That's what it means to pursue personal holiness. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Holiness is not defined by the rules of a church or by the traditions of men or by the commonly accepted norms of evangelical culture. Holiness is defined by the character of God and a pursuit of holiness is a pursuit of Him. If you understand this, brothers, you will avoid the pitfalls of pharisaical legalism and practical antinomianism because you won't be in bondage to meet a list of external standards, but you also won't fail to apply the truth of God's character to the way you live your life. Lastly, in this picture, there's a revering of the Father's judgment. A revering of the Father's judgment. Look at verse 17. He says, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Now, at first glance, this just seems out of place. Peter, you've been talking about hope and grace and resting. What's up with all this judgment and fear? This doesn't mean this doesn't mean to have fear for failing to meet some man-made standard of holiness. Sure. The function of this verse is to serve as a, as a reminder, number one, that there will be an examination of our pursuit of holiness. 
And there will not be any bias in this evaluation. Our lives will be examined, and God will see if we girded up the loins of our minds, if we rested our hope fully in grace, and if we pursued personal holiness in our lives as his children. He is the Father, and without partiality, he's going to examine. But secondly, it's a warning and an exhortation to obey the imperatives that were just given. To rest in grace. See, the unbeliever is afraid. The unbeliever is afraid of dying and standing before God and not having done enough good. They should be afraid of that. But here's what you should really, really be afraid of. Not resting in what Christ has already done. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. This phrase, the time of your stay here, literally translated would be your exile. Peter's using all kinds of Old Testament imagery. We get down to verse 18, we'll really see it. This fear is the filial fear of a child that causes him to revere his father. We fear because personal holiness is not an option. If we're not pursuing it, we have no reason to think that we'll see the Lord when we die. Therefore, we must work harder? No. Therefore, we must toil longer? No. Therefore, we must fear not girding up the loins of our mind. We must fear not resting our hope fully in His grace. We must fear having peace within us when we cozy up to the sins that Christ died to save us from. Listen, if you call yourself a Christian and you can get in bed with the wickedness from which you have been redeemed, be very afraid. Again, Calvin says, as God's eyes are such that they penetrate into the hidden recesses of the heart, we ought to walk with him carefully and not negligently. Throughout our exile here. Again, Peter points us to the fact that this life will soon pass away and Christ will return. In this age, we are strangers and aliens and we're called not to conform to the world nor the ways of it, but to be consecrated, set apart, separated as a holy people unto our God, pursuing Him. This is the picture of personal holiness. Deep, active, clear thinking about the reality of your God, that thinking in your brain forms deeply rooted convictions that seep down into your heart, and then as you consider who God is, all that He's done, all that He will yet do, you begin to rest your hope fully on His grace. And that resting hope produces an active pursuit of holiness as you strive to be like Him in all your conduct until He comes back for you. Having painted this picture... Having painted this picture of what it looks like, we'll spend the entirety of our time together tomorrow gleaning into the power of this holiness. By that I mean the power that works on you and in you and engages your mind and engages your soul and engages your body in this pursuit. (laughs) It's hard to rest. 
We're all born into this world as workers. We're born as a result of the fall and the curse, thinking, I've got to do it. I've got to do it. Pull myself up by the bootstraps. Do the enough good works to please God, to earn His favor. It's hard to rest. Sure. But God gives us a power that enables us to rest. We'll look at that tomorrow, but permit me to give you the preview. The power of holiness is not your self-willed, fleshly determination, nor is it your rigorous discipline, nor is it your carnal attempts at obedience. The power of your holiness comes from the grace that was secured for you at a place called Golgotha on a hill called Calvary, where the Son of God was suspended between heaven and earth. And where he consumed the wrath of God and received the execution of divine justice so that God could freely give you the grace that pursued holiness. It's hard for a convict on the run to rest. Always in fear of his life. Always in fear of the executioner's gallows. Sinner, you'll never be able to rest. If the condemnation of divine judgment is weighing on your mind and your heart, you'll never rest. I pray you don't. But if you know that He's for you, that all His guilt is washed away, all your guilt is washed away, all His wrath has been propitiated, and He has nothing for you but grace and love and peace and joy... And you can go home and you can pillow your head and point your toes towards heaven and sleep and rest. So I close with this question. Are you working to produce a carnal holiness with the hopes that God might someday accept it? Or are you resting in the finished work of Christ, knowing that you are fully accepted in the beloved and free to pursue holiness, not to earn God's favor, but because you already have it? The only way you're ever going to overcome sin and pursue holiness is through desire, not duty. That's why you sin, because you like it so much. If you're going to pursue holiness, you need to find a greater love. And you must begin your pursuit with the confidence that God loves you first, therefore you love Him. And that Christ has died to make you His own. That the grace of God is yours to rest your hope in. It's yours. In Christ, it's yours. So are you working? Are you resting? Are you working? Are you resting? Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us. For the blood of Christ that was shed to make us holy. Father, would you sanctify us by this blood and yet someday glorify us by this blood. But until then, oh, until then, may you empower us by this blood. To pursue you, pursue holiness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.